wonderful God, God who is the God of those in exile in Babylon, God who is the God of those in exile in Egypt, God who is our God, we come after a week of living our lives in different degrees, perhaps, of separation from you, we come now together here to this place to hear your word, to hear it speak to our hearts and our lives. Echo your word inside of our heads and let it activate our feet and our hands to do the will that you reveal to us today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Our reading today comes from the Psalms, Psalm 139, verses 1 through 6. O Lord, you have searched me and known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and where I will lie down, and you are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue, there you, O Lord, know it already completely. You come in behind me and in front of me. You lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is so incredible, I cannot contain it. This is the word of the Lord. We continue this summer through a sermon series considering uh, the fourth commandment, the Sabbath. What it is to receive the gift of the Sabbath, to practice it, why it is in fact uh, urgent and life-giving. Today... Uh, will look a little different in that we won't be exploring the Sabbath in such a focused way, but rather considering a Sabbath encounter that Jesus had and, and considering the way that encounter illuminates and opens us uh, unto something that really sits at the heart of our Christian faith. From the New Testament, we're looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Again, Jesus entered the synagogue and a man, w- and a man was there who had a withered hand. They watched him to see whether he would cure him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. Then he said to the Pharisees, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. He looked around at them with anger. He was grieved at their hardness of heart and said to the man, stretch out your hand. He stretched it out that his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out immediately and conspired with the Herodians against him how to destroy him. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. It has been nearly a decade since a ridiculous softball accident broke my left hands. I still wear the scars quite visibly. It was a pretty bad break. Happened on a Thursday night. And surgery was to fall on Monday morning. In between Thursday and Monday, I had a Saturday wedding to conduct. 
The problem is Thursday night they put on me this massive cast, elbow all the way up to halfway along my hand just to hold everything in place like so. So I arrived to the wedding with my suit coat pulled over by Michelle because I couldn't get the suit coat on. It was a big old cast. I had my wedding notes just propped right there and up against me like this. And then hanging down, visible, are these three fingers. And hanging down is the right word. They are so visibly broken. They're just like that, the whole service. In fact, I'm so concerned with how much attention is being brought to these fingers just hanging there that I feel a need very early in the service to just mention, yes, they are horribly broken, aren't they? They're there, let's move on. Bridegroom, vows, bigger things. But really, that's the way of it, yes? We notice the broken things. We notice the ailments. We notice when someone suddenly comes in on crutches, on a cast, now has a wheelchair, now has a cough, a pronounced limp, a prosthetic limb. Goodness, I walk around the, the, the child development center here, and if I have a Band-Aid on my finger one day, inevitably a child is going to say, Oh no, what happened? We notice the broken things, the hurting things, until, of course, we don't. There was a man with a withered hand in the synagogue. Withered. Somehow weakened, paralyzed, useless. Now the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they notice he's in the synagogue, but but notice what they're really noticing. Notice where their fullest attention is. They watch Jesus to see whether Jesus would cure the man on the Sabbath so they might accuse him. It is not the withered hand man or his ailment or his need that grabbed their imagination or their prayer or their empathy. It is the distinct possibility that someone in their midst might break a Sabbath law. This has their rapt attention. To be sure, the Pharisees are not just a grumpy bunch of rule keepers. They were at their best, actually, a most faithful people, quite studied in God's law and, and very much seeking to do God's will in all aspects of life. Much of their way of being centered upon taking Leviticus 19.2 with a reverent seriousness. Be holy because I, the Lord your God, am holy. And the Pharisees understood holy to mean pure. To be holy means to be pure, not defiled with sins or the things that God forbids. In fact, the name Pharisee, it comes from a Hebrew word that means to, to separate. Purity is about separating oneself from that which is unholy. And so absolutely the Pharisees take the purity laws quite seriously. Purity laws about food, about who could be touched and not touched, about dress, certainly about keeping the Sabbath pure. As well, physical wholeness, purity issue. People who are maimed, chronically ill, lepers, eunuchs, impure. As one theologian summarily states, the effect of the purity system was to create a world with sharp social boundaries between pure and impure, righteous and sinner, whole and not whole, male and female, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile. That is a very different world from ours, and especially in this country, where we name from birth and we celebrate the fact that all are created equal. And yet I'm mindful in our day of hyper-partisanship that it is sometimes extraordinarily difficult to avoid some of the underlying thinking that is going on in the ancient world. If you voted this way, 
or you're part of this denomination, or you drive this kind of vehicle or don't drive a vehicle, or if you live in this neighborhood or that one, or you have this bumper sticker, or you eat that kind of food, or you have this regional kind of accent, or you are of this generation, it is hard, increasingly, for our minds not to quickly think, then you are all those things them. You are all those things that. You are all those things red. You are all those things blue. And we know about all those things, them. And what I've noticed increasingly in recent years is that the red police the red and the blue police the blue. If a Democrat or a Republican, whether in your family or, or publicly, breaks rank, watch how their own devour them for not keeping the purity of the cause. If a conservative or progressive does not properly or strongly enough condemn this or that on social media or stand and encourage this or that on social media, if they do not virtue signal as it is sometimes critiqued, what are they really about? How, how pure are they? It, of course, very much infects the church. Just tell me what denomination they are, where they stand on this or that, and precisely I will then know if they're uh, pure Or not. We do have an ancient inclination within to see one another in terms of purity codes of some sort religious, political, ethnic, otherwise. And if we let ourselves get caught up in who is saying what and who is standing where and who did vote this way and that and where is the church on this and that. If, if we get so caught up with where people are in the line and not that this is unimportant but if we're so caught up in that we can find that we've inadvertently just started to pay attention to the line and not the people. What happens is people we encounter each day are then judged and boxed up on one side or the other of the line and appreciated and disdained accordingly based on their politics or their membership or their citizenship or their theology. They are either welcomed into the fold with a knowing nudge or they're just eye-rolled as, as hopelessly ridiculous. Now I want to be careful here because God's justice does call us to take stands, to confront sin, to not remain silent in, in the face of, of evil and, and sin, whether it's going on in a small way in our family or in a macro global way. History has taught us that painful lesson time and again. No, but what I'm talking about is what happens when the human heart get, people get so caught up in the purity of the cause that they really just start staring at the line and demarking people as more or less based on how they fall along that line. It's no longer seeing people as made in the image of God in that beautiful way Psalm 139 declares. It is treating people according to how they measure along the line, unless we be unclear about how dark a path it is for the heart to start thinking in terms of lines and ins and outs, our passage ends with the line watching people plotting to destroy Jesus. How would one know if one is paying too much attention to the purity lines and where folks and people in the church stand? One measure is this. We notice we're not noticing the ailments, the needs in our presence. The ailments, the needs, the brokenness, even in the other. The ailments, the needs, the brokenness in ourselves. 
We have instead become obsessed with who's in, who's not, who's pure, who's not. And Jesus said to the man who had the withered hand, come forward. In a very visible public space of worship, all who've been keenly watching the Sabbath line now have their eyes drawn up to the human being who is ailing and in need. Jesus places the attention on the need, not the rule or the tradition. In fact, Jesus tells the man you read to stretch his hand out. Make the pain, the ailment, the hurt, the impurity all the more front and center to every single eye. And the hand is healed. Now Jesus is not just healing there. He has definitely put something else front and center of this synagogue. And it's becoming quite clear that Jesus is not equating holiness with purity like the Pharisees. In fact, if you read the Gospels, you know that Mark 3 is but one of a myriad of examples where Jesus breaks or bends purity laws, like eating with tax collectors and sinners, touching lepers, having women in his group of followers and now Jesus brings this impure person to the center of the sanctuary and he does work he heals a non-threatening a non-life-threatening injury on the sabbath because time and again what you start to find is Jesus is making compassion not purity most central in fact at one point in Jesus's ministry he declares listen to how it's phrased Be compassionate as your Father in heaven is compassionate. Commentators note this is Jesus is very intentionally echoing the words of Leviticus 19.2. Be holy as I am holy. But he's replacing the word holy with compassionate. So as to be clear, what makes God's people holy and other is not fundamentally a purity code, but compassion. Compassion is what sets people God's people apart. Compassion, literally with, come, passion, suffering. A people know how to be with and for one another in one another's suffering. They see it and therein they love. We had a, a couple of uh, Grace Covenant goes to the movie outings this past week and some of you were able to join in on one of the Uh, film outings and on Monday there was a group that went to see Won't You Be My Neighbor this exceptional documentary about the life of Presbyterian ordained Fred Rogers and his show Mr. Rogers Neighborhood Uh, at one point the documentary recounts some of the best advice Fred Rogers ever received from his mother advice he then tried to pass along all the time on the television show Rogers said when I was a boy I would see scary things in the news And my mother would say to me, look for the helpers. You will always find people who are helping. He goes on, to this day, especially in times of disaster, I remember my mother's words and I'm always comforted by realizing that there are still so many helpers, so many caring people in the world. In times of disaster, trial, inexplicable horror, she does not. Have them obsessively look to the line of where folks are lining up politically and religiously and if it's appropriate to care about this or that and how to think about this. Nor does she counsel, just look away, this too shall pass. No, she points him to the people who are helping and she defines help as those who care. 
He's to look for the people who amid the mess are caring, which means they are the people whose eyes and hearts are foremost upon the withered hands. Notice the ones who notice the ailments, the needs, the pains, the ones who are with the suffering, the compassionate. What a great way to train up a child in the way of compassion. The way of, of, quite frankly, Jesus. And you recall how often Jesus' teachings are prefaced with, and Jesus had compassion on the people. I, mean, I think this is why in the past couple of weeks we've seen sort of the Christians of every theological and political stripe in somewhat uh, a remarkable way raise voice against separating families at our borders. And then we need laws. We have laws. Goodness Many people come here in large part because they're hoping for some measure of structure and law as they flee failing systems. But we've also recognized that, that for all the political lines and laws, they, they are secondary to human need and compassion. We, we, we follow a savior who came not to abolish the law, but, but goodness amid all of the purity laws, he puts the ailing hand, the aching hand, the hand that cannot hold a child, the hand who has no work, the hands that are tired, the withered hands. He puts the hands front and center so that he might heal so that his body on earth, the helpers, might see. Compassion is central. In fact, it is quite literally the hill our God dies upon. Jesus' death was not pure, not remotely. The holy bleeding out on Golgotha, the holy naked, the holy mocked purity but how the moment dripped with compassion. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The cross proclaims this senseless compassion, this undeserved compassion at this cosmopolitan intersection of Jews and Romans and betrayers and hypocrites and and Hebrew and Greek and Latin and Aramaic. The cross of God is raised and raises compassion. God's final and full response to sinners. We are saved by the compassion of our God. Indeed, thanks be to God that God does not hold us next to some kind of purity line, but rather among the many withered hands Jesus invites front and centered to heal with abundant compassion are ours. I wonder who among us this day needs to place our ailing hands, our tired hands, our guilty hands, our failing hands, our grieving hands, our calloused hands, our trembling hands. I wonder who among us this day just needs to put our hands front and center and know the profound healing of Jesus who is with our suffering. Good news unfolds on the Sabbath day in Mark 3. Not when the ailments, the impurities, the pains, the imperfections are hidden and the lines of tradition are kept just so, but when it is all brought plainly, humbly in sight before Jesus and the helpers in Christ. May we know the profound healing of our compassionate Christ again 
this Sabbath day. And then having known afresh the gift of that compassion upon these our hands. Thank goodness. Whether we go from here and we're known as a historic church or a beautiful church or a big church or a small church or a conservative church or a liberal church. Who cares? May we be known as a radically compassionate Church, people whose eyes notice and care for the withered hands of need and brokenness right there in our midst. A people whose lives lift up the heart of the cross of Jesus Christ. A people who are in fact set apart for we are compassionate as our Father in heaven is compassionate. Amen.